Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Honest to Pod, the podcast where each week we pick something to ramble on about current events or or personal growth, the right to protest. <laughs> this horrible mess of hair. I'm Nappy Rash. I'm Ashley McAllister. And I'm Matthew Ali. And this is episode 101. 101. Dalmatians. 101 Dalmatians. That is the number of pups it takes to make a fabulous coat. I feel like I remember, they didn't do like a remake of that, did they? 101 Dalmatians, like relatively recently. They, well, no, they haven't, but they have a film coming out called Cruella, which stars Emma Stone as Cruella Deville. Cruella is my favorite Disney villain, and I'm gonna tell you why. Most, in fact, I'd probably say all other Disney villains, they want power, they want riches, They want the world. She just wants a coat. She is out there to get a coat. And that's just fabulous. That's it. That's all she wants. That's all she wants. Just a coat full of Dalmatians. I mean, (laughs) it is a sense of power. (laughs) I mean, she's rich enough as it is. Like, she's Miss Deville. But, um... Yes. All she wants is a fucking coat. She is a fashion bitch. I love it. I'm here for it. Before it was like outlawed, and so I wouldn't do it now because I bought like a leather coat, but I bought like a faux one. I always wanted a real fur growing up because I used to always have it on cribs. You'd be like Usher or someone had these long ass furs and I'd be like, oh, they look so good. So I get that bitch. I understand why she's your favorite. I do. Because you also know I'd kill that animal. I'd kill animals for fashion as well. <laughs> well, I was having this conversation with someone the other day because they... So we spoke about... Um... Meghan Markle and Harry. And then the bit that we hated, I hated, was them being with the chickens and shit, being like, oh, this is my real life, blah, blah, blah. And I was talking to someone about it, and they were like, well, I hope the bitch is a vegan. And I was like, why? And he was like, well, you can't claim to love animals and be caring and rear them and then eat meat. And I was like, I think this is a real topic of conversation. Not with you, obviously, because I know how you feel. I can see from your face. Because he was like, why don't you do it on the podcast? And I was like, there's only one answer. Ashley's going to be like, fuck the vegans, fuck the vegans. But it is interesting to be like, can you care for animals so much and then still eat certain meat? Um, so it's just interesting to think that, you know, people say they love, he says, he thinks it's a contradiction that you can love dogs, you know, love cats, people do it. And then the same thing, have a plate of beef, which I'm like, fair, that makes sense. That makes sense for you. And that's if that's the lifestyle they choose to go down, perfect. Um, other people can have a pet dog and still have a rack of ribs, I, you know, it. There's not a one rule fits all in this scenario. Um, and, you know, there's, there's just to say that she loves she loves chickens doesn't mean she has to be a vegan. Like, eggs are a natural byproduct of egg, of chickens. Like, no, she can love it. She can love a chicken and not hurt it and still lay an egg. Um, are you talking about she's taking the... No... Because then you're just stealing their eggs and their potential babies and or their food source. Like, no. That's the same honey, as, like, milking cows and shit. And honey. Honey, no. These are all natural byproducts. It's fine. Uh, each to their own. But, no. How's your week been? Week's been... Oh, uh, the reads. What have I done? Um, 
I have got myself a job. You took the job? Yes, I did. I didn't tell you, did I? No. Yeah, you said you might, but you didn't. Obviously, I like, have the call and stuff. So that's good. Well done. Yeah. Congratulations. Uh, thank you. So I interviewed for those listening. I interviewed for a job, got told I didn't get it. Um, and then they they left a few days and then called me back and said, hey, so we've created a position for you because we loved your interview so much, uh, which is a, a massive compliment. So I'm, yeah, really excited about that. I don't start for a few weeks, but yeah, excited. <gasps> but yeah, so apart from, apart from that, yeah, my week's been pretty good. I got new TV and shit like that. But Matt, how about your week? Tell me about your week. I can't stop pooing so much. And like I had a really good week, like exercise wise and stuff, because we've got these like um, challenges with rugby. And then the past two days, I haven't really been able to. And I feel like maybe I've like worn myself up. But I have a feeling I might be wrong. Like, because I'm pooing so much, it's taking all of my energy from my body. And so I was like, maybe that's why my legs have been really tired the past like two or three days. Because it's just all the time. And I'm not eating particularly badly. I had like um, fried chicken on the weekend. But yeah, it's been pretty good. And I'm just like, I can't stop going to the toilet. And then I'm like, I had to have a two hour nap yesterday. I slept loads today the past two days. And I'm just like, I'm drained. And I think it's just my body processing all this food. Not even the food. Like, it must be like taking, I'm hoping it's taking like all my body fat and then turning that into waste product because I'm not eating loads. Mm. I'm not eating loads, but yeah. All these processes are need energy in your body to do. So it makes sense that if your body is restructuring the fat levels, that it's going to exhaust it a bit. I think that's it. All you <laughs> yeah. have to do is rest more. Rest more. And drink more water. Flush I it drink out. so much water. I do, I I drink, do drink a lot of water. Speaking of water, one thing happened to me yesterday, which is what I talked about in the intro, is I gave myself nappy rash. And how was your weekend with your boyfriend? <laughs> I got out of the shower and I didn't dry my crack properly and it rashed up a bit. So it's a bit sore. Uh, I I don't like to towel dry too much. So I sit on my bed and I actually open up my legs to let it air dry because mm. there's a lot of crevices. So yeah. Well, I had just, I got showered and dressed in a hurry, and I was just like, boo, doo, doo, boo. so I've had I put the soda cream on it today. Hey, Ashley. Hey, Matt. We haven't said it for a while, but how can some people help support a lovely, lovely podcast? I mean, there are several ways in which our lovely listeners can support our podcast. One of the easiest is just sharing, telling your friends, telling your family, sending a carrier pigeon to your family abroad to say, hey, listen to this. Anyway, I think what would be better is if you just tell all your friends to follow us because it's us. Um, Another way to support the podcast, Matt, is through Patreon. Yep, 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 yep. So Patreon is a platform which helps creative people like ourselves fund the podcast um, or other creative outlets, whatever they're into. But ours is for the podcast and it's a simple little thing, totally safe, where you can subscribe in inverted commas. um, But essentially it's a little monthly takeaway. You wouldn't even miss it. It's the price of a coffee. Mm-hmm. You won't even notice. Most people don't. They'd be like, oh, yeah. But it helps us so much. It does. It we does. say we like to grow. 
we're going to submit maybe some applications for awards and things like that and they take mm. a bit of moolah big yeah, money baby there's three different levels for patreon so there's the basic which is about the price of a coffee there is the bougie which is probably the price of a pint in london and there is the sugar daddy what did you shake your head for i wish you could get a pint for four pounds what price of a pint costs mm. costs vary depending it's on less live. than a pint it's less than a pint jamie you know I mean? no more weather spoons don't go to weather spoons even though i'm like i keep driving by and i'm like mm, once it opens it'd be nice just to get smashed there but you no, no more weather spins. Yeah, we're not allowed to go. It's one of the things we're not allowed to do either. But that's not. Why, what's that? why, why is it? Why is it on the list now? Because when COVID had happened, they basically got rid of all their staff before they even had the opportunity to make them redundant or um, put them on furlough. Yeah. Anyway, Matt, on with the show. So this week, more protests. Ashley McAllister. It was it was a protest heavy weekend. Um, it's not something we've talked about on the podcast before, but we did. I think it was it did happen when we last recorded. When we last recorded, uh, Sarah Everard was still missing. Obviously, it's come to light now that she has. Is it? It's been confirmed that he killed her. Is it? Or is it still? It's on trial. He's not had his trial yet. But so yeah, sadly, the news broke last week and as a sign of respect the young girls from south south uh london so they went to clapham and uh people were in clapham leaving flowers um did you see the power play by i say power play but low-key power play by the royal family sending kate middleton in there without security being like ah! Megan, we don't need security, thank you. We're just like everybody else around here. Everyone's such a cynic. Everyone is such a cynic. Power play. You think that was a power move? Power. Well, it was. A, it was. De- it had a purpose to send her in there without security. Everything is a purpose. Everything has a purpose, and obviously, like she's aware, and everyone's aware of what they're doing. I would like to think that she wants to pay her respects, and maybe it is a play in the terms of oh, she's allowed to do what she wants and be a bit freer. Because she didn't have a mask on and that saying like, oh, you're not locked or trapped in. So, yeah, I guess that makes sense. I don't. But I'm not I'm not saying that she didn't want to pay respect. She seems very switched on, very engaged. I 100 percent think she would want to have done something if Megan's interview had not just happened, calling them all out for being trapped and and begging for security. Would she have gone into a vigil like that? And so I've never known another instance where they've gone like that. And timing was pretty it. Uh, convenient for her to come and not have security what i find about that situation in particular is i really feel like it's been underplayed whereas for some reason i feel like if the interview hadn't happened or if it was megan markle had done it that the news about no security no mask going into a corona situation like that would be bad news i really do so i'm quite interested as to why i think you get a little bit of news but it's not front page headline news and that there's little to no criticism, which I, I think is a bit unfair. Yeah, I I genuinely for a long time didn't believe it was her. I was like, it's not her. It's not her. It's just look like. But I didn't understand how the vigil was a protest at the start, but I guess it kind of went from a vigil to a protest, or the whole point is of it. But it's quite interesting how it unfolded and that, Okay, this is, sounds really bad, but I 
given like Black Lives Matter and stuff last year, and that people have been saying that the police handle situations not the best and don't necessarily uh, don't have the skills, the mentality to control situations. In my head, right, I'm low-key like, I'm so glad this has happened to a bunch of white women. I really am. Because it could either be like they didn't do it to them and treat them that way. And then black people are like, oh, well, you do this to black people all the time. But it's actually a good thing to say that it doesn't matter who you are. No ramping. The police are, don't, aren't able to handle situations well or effectively. I think the police, the police handled that situation appallingly. But I also don't think that situation should have happened in the first place. In what way? What do you mean? I can to- I can totally understand. First of all, like there's lots of things that's happened. Gathering for a protest is now not allowed. So for the vigil, which is a sign of respect for for Sarah Everard, when it turned into a protest, that's where I thought, right, this is no longer a vigil, and the purpose of this is a little bit different. Um, not from a political point of view, but from like a uh, an organizational point of view. They applied to have this thing and it was declined. The movement of somebody going up and placing flowers and then stepping away is very fluid, um, keeps moving. But when you have people congregating um, around the bandstand, and when people go up and start speaking and then that then draws in the crowd more, that's when I took issue with it. Um, because it wasn't it wasn't set up correctly for that. I, um, I don't want to be sitting here and... Ju- on June 21st thinking, well, we're not going out of the house tomorrow because people didn't follow the guidelines. Well, no, that's the same thing they said like last year in the protest being like, okay, this is going to be a cause for something to continue in the coronavirus, which is not true. Like it's other people's behaviors, not these individual instances. And the vigil was never about her. It was about, it's paying her respects to her. It's the same as George Floyd, but it's symbolic for the situation that they're saying is for everyone because there's no reason why all of these people are going to pay their respects to uh, a young woman that they don't know when people are dying all the time. Only the other day, there's another woman, 21-year-old Blessing, who was found and she lived in Eltham and nothing about her, about her death at all, despite the fact that it's a similar situation as a young woman who was murdered by a man. So it's more about the mistreatment of women, which is, uh, you know, a worthy cause. Absolutely. I just, it's just interesting. Personally, I don't have a problem with people's right to protest. They, the, the, the issue is, is the police knew this was going to happen. And they chose to say that they were not willing to help facilitate the situation. Right. So when they denied the permission of um, the organisers and the organisers cancelled it, it's very short sighted because tens of thousands of people or whatever it is already know and believe this event's going to happen. And so even if the organisers say no and the police say no, these people are still going to go. If you don't think so, then it's naive, I think. Yeah. And so they could either be a part of it or they could not be. And then using the bandstand, it's the same thing as the protest before. The police do instigate these things by picking out examples when they can help facilitate it. Because the people were never going to leave. Like, you can tell, you know. But there's no one smart enough. There's no one intelligent enough. There's no one with the experience, it seems, to be able to manage a situation like that. And then it'll come down to, oh, the police are, you know, people and we have to deal with this. No, but you need to be trained well. You need to have people experienced enough to deal with these sort of situations. If you see it's going down. If the protesters are speaking and shouting at you, you need to be able to deal with that situation. And they're just not able to do it. Yeah. They, they, I think in my head, they deal with things the way I deal with stuff, but I'm not trained. Like, if somebody shouts to me, I'm like, what the fuck? 
Um, and that's exactly. not the best way. <laughs> I know I'm wrong with that. Um, so yeah, I don't think they're they're I don't think they are trained to deal with that. But in the circumstances where they're like, if they're out to do their job, which is disperse this crowd, that's their job to do that. And they've asked people to move on to move on, and they're not doing it. They're, what can the police do in that situation? Like when they're told to like, we need to get rid of this crowd because it's becoming unsafe. What can the police do in that situation? Well, everything's like good in retrospect, but they shouldn't have, that shouldn't have been their, f- their action in the first place. If they had just said, fair enough, it's under duress. And then this is where pride comes involved, or I don't know if law, blah, 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 whatever, you know, how they're seen. But if they had said, okay, you can do what you need to do, but these are the guidelines and we're going to help you do it. Then that mitigates a whole bunch of situation, like, you know, possible situations that occur. But instead they've, when you draw a blunt line, if someone says to you as an adult or as a human being, no, you can't do this, people yeah. get, I get, you know, I put my foot down and say, no, I want to do what I want. I'm an adult, blah, 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 this, that, and the other. And then it becomes a confrontation. It becomes conflict. Instead of it becoming conflict by just saying no, and then you need to cancel this, it needs to be, okay, well, how can we do this and how can we do it safely? That is the point in terms of what the police need to do. But they don't have any negotiation skills. But I guess... And it is a negotiation. Other, the big point as well is that big gatherings like that are not legal they, they at this stage in a pandemic they they weren't allowed to gather in those crowds like that so i know you're saying as an adult if i'm saying you know I, I, I guess what it would be is like i want to kill that person no match you can't kill that person damn it i want to break the law and kill that person like when when the threat is the law and you're breaking the law then i i think that adds a little bit of a different spin on it it does, but you can you can talk about these things. Because even in your example, even though I think that's not a fair example, if I said I wanted to kill someone, you said no. And then I said, okay, well, I'm going to kill you. Well, I really want to. And then it becomes this big old fight when we can just say, okay, if, you, if I'm saying I don't think you should kill people because the law says this, what is it that we can do to make sure of this? And you say, okay, well, I'll just kill five chickens. And then that'll do it, you know, or something. But it's just the ability to be able to say, okay, we understand this is against the law. We're not saying that it's okay, but these, this is what the police are going to do, and this is their role. If they'd said no bandstand, no congregating, it's coming to you. Have you heard about this new bill that's being like negotiated or like spoken about now in, in Parliament? No, I think I do, but I don't know enough. It's a, I, I've got it, unfortunately, because I'm on my phone now because I'm having issues with recording. Um, there's this bill, basically, and it's a very large thing that has many different aspects to it. One of which is some people are calling it the anti-protest bill because it's saying it's going to limit the amount you can protest and the rules you can do. So yeah. there's going to be certain things like they can make rules if, you know, they can you can put a start time and a finish time on protests. And if you've a one, it even talks about one person protest and amount of noise um, level disruptions and then the police being able to break up. It basically says that like this situation, the police and whoever is responsible have the opportunity and the power to dispel protests based on what they deem or see fit. And it even means that Priti Patel, the Home Secretary, can create legislation without it being given permission by anyone else based on these new rules, just because they feel that this is a hindrance or, you know, it's going to affect people, which is a shame because then it basically puts the control. It, It does stifle the idea of protest for sure. If you have to, you know, they're putting barriers around it, which there already are, but not as many. There's many other things as well. Apparently this thing's got to do with like things that um, affect gypsies and travellers and how they exist because they're going to put new trespassing laws and all this sort of stuff. 
But one of those is about this anti-protest thing. So it's just interesting that it's coming out now when people want to protest. Um, and hope I, 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 this is where I'm cynical. I'm sure it will pass the way that Priti Patel wants um, the Home Secretary and people will protest against that. And then this is going to cause more aggro. But it's just this thing again where people just refuse to listen to what the people want mm. and won't negotiate and don't have these skills just because they want to do what they think is right and have no ability to change their mind, which is just really frustrating. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that something's pretty dangerous as well. Starting to take a slippery slope into George Orwell's 1985. <laughs> uh, 1984. 1984. <laughs> 1985 is the year I was born. <laughs> That's in my head. 1984, yeah. Sounds like a slippery slope into like dystopian fiction. The, the police should not have handled that situation in the way they did. Um, and I think if it opens up questions about police training again, especially here, not 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 a year after everything that happened last year with the police, it just, nothing's changed in a year. And it's incredibly sad to see it's not getting any better. It is sad. I'm glad it happened because... I know, and I can, I can understand your stance on that, like... I, yeah, you know, because it, you know, I think I heard somebody else say, you know, with this, it's 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 refreshing to see like it's middle class white girls getting arrested. Oh my god, because so it's, good. It it's a different story, and it you know it, it brings somebody else into the picture of it, and obviously, what we're saying overall is neither are good, but it's refreshing to see it's just not another black face on the front cover being arrested our thoughts and prayers go out to sarah's family um horrible horrible time i her face has just become a symbol of what it's like to be a woman and i've seen a lot more conversations happen about it which is always a good thing i you know for example in ourselves i've never thought twice about not putting my headphones in to walk home like when i leave your house um to walk to the station i'm like boop um and i just you know i never thought twice that people couldn't feel comfortable doing that oh that's mad i always i'm on alert high alert always looking around always have one headphone in my mum taught me to put my keys in my hand at a young age going through um yeah i've always been like that always been wary about who's around me who's behind me actually today we've got a lovely guest of us as well this week we have he is dialing in from the australia and then uh, we recorded this a couple of weeks De- about 10 days a bit back ago i don't know yeah. yeah and so we're bringing in this now there is a little bit of a delay or a little bit of a sound sort of zoomy thing so just bear that in mind but we still believe it's a lovely wonderful interview with simon dunn australian bobsleigh and rugby superstar mm-hmm Yes, indeed. He's joining us to talk about his story and some charity work that he's doing. So, yeah, guys. Cool listen. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. And like we said, we've got the lovely Simon Dunn with us. Hello, Simon. Hey, Simon. Hello, and thank you for having me. Um, from sunny Australia, I was just bragging that the nice blue sky is outside, so... Well, I've got a blue wall, so yeah. there you go. Close enough. <laughs> I've just got the blues. You do. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, bringing dampener. What time is it with you, Simon? What time is it in the day? Uh, it's, it's 9 a.m. here. And nice. I'm pretty sure it's like 10 p.m. there. So I do apologize, but thank you. Um, as we mentioned, 
it is Mardi Gras season here and I need sleep. <laughs> jealous. Get the bags out. No, I've never jealous. been to Mardi Gras. What is it like? It's fantastic. So it's it's a little different to all the other prides around the world because it's a nighttime parade, um, which generally sets you off to a pretty good start of debauchery and enjoyment. Uh, but this year is going to be a little different uh, because of our good friend, Uncle Corona or Auntie Corona. We've had to downsize the parade. So it's not a street parade. It's in the in a football field or cricket field as we're in Australia um, and people just walk around the field so there's no dance parties or anything so, so I know every single gay in Sydney is either going on a boat or having a house party so are you allowed to have house parties <laughs> there. yes so we're allowed 50 people in our houses it's just been upgraded oh wow Not, that seems, that seems like massive anyway like even before corona I'd be like 50 people in my house are you mads yeah, Phyllis and, and I are having a few friends over to watch the rerun of the parade and they're like, oh, you can have 50. I was like, no. <laughs> we live in a one bedroom and we're going to have 10. You do not, I mean, you do not like to have a wild night out. I think you like an early night, tuck up in beds, mm-hmm. you know. Purple that's exactly, that, yeah, that's exactly the impression you got from me at Steelers, right? That is, so Simon and I, we all know Simon from the Kingshaw Steelers. Simon plays rugby. That's what we should say, to be fair. So Simon, um, I'm sure many people do know you, but just for those that don't, um, tell us a little bit about yourself. Who are you? Um, I am Simon Dunn. I am Australian, obviously. Um, I used to be a former professional bobsledder on the Australian national team, uh, which made me the first openly gay man to represent a country in the sport. Um, Now I'm an old man who can't retire from rugby. Um, I've retired four years in a row and I'm still training for this season. So rugby's like crack. You just can't put it down. Not that I'd know, but. (laughs) 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 So I hear. So so I hear. (laughs) (laughs) It's a a well-known expression. Yeah, I'm sure you'd agree. I'm sure you'd agree that you you just, even though my, I think my last season at the Steelers, I, like Felix and uh, three of our first dates were at the A&E and I compressed the disc in my spine and like, I'm still having a run. No, I absolutely know how you feel. I keep saying like, I, I, one of the last games we had the season before Corona happened in the, in the first 20 minutes, I got hit in the eye. My nose was broken. My eyeball was swollen. I couldn't see out of it. And I still stayed on playing that game yeah. and say to the whole game, I couldn't see it was completely swollen. I don't know what it is about rugby that does it, but the pain seems to be something that's so sweet. I think the older, yeah, it's more fun hurting others. I think the older you get, you get smarter at rugby. So you want to try and use, whereas like when you're young and dumb, you just threw yourself around, but you weren't getting injured. So you, you kind of like, you want to still play because you think, you're, because you're getting better, but your body's yeah. like, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> Do you have more injuries from rugby than from bobsleigh? Because I mean, shooting down a tunnel a million miles an hour or something has to be pretty severe. Bob say is, is, is very, it's a very controlled environment. Um, I very rarely get hurt unless you've you crash. Um, generally with a crash, you will just tip over unless you hit crashing on a corner. Um, so we've crashing, you've got the risk of concussion. Uh, we wear burns best. Um, so that goes under our clothing to stop our skin from obviously peeling off on the ice. And so on a crash, you just go from helmet to shoulders and just try and make sure one of them doesn't spend too much time on the ice. In rugby, everything hurts. I think my first season back at rugby, I was knocked out four times. I tore my bicep from the tendon. I fractured my ulna. And as I mentioned earlier, I compressed the disc in my spine. 
I think the worst that happened to me in bobsleigh was a minor concussion. I've seen you play rugby before. And you say when you were young, <laughs> we all ran into people. Just so you know, yeah. we all did not run into people. You ran into people at a young age. <laughs> yeah, Definitely uh, didn't do I that. love I love it. I think we worked yeah. out at the Steelers. I've hurt three people than myself. And you were on the same team. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, oh, there's that dog. <laughs> I'll, just, I'll just mute myself until he... Cheers. All right, so how did you actually get into rugby? Uh, so I played rugby league from the age of four. I was a little short, blonde-haired kid and... It's just in, in Australia, rugby league or like American, Australian football is all you really know. There's no other sport. Um, so it was just a natural progression. And I played that until I was about 16. Um, unfortunately, I gave that up because of my sexuality. And I'm, I'm sure you're both aware that the, the rugby world can sometimes be a very non-welcoming place as a gay man. So I ended up just giving, giving up sport because it was the only thing that I could control, whereas by 16, you, you kind of realise your sexuality is something that you cannot control because it's a fundamental part of who you are. Um, so that's why I ended up giving up rugby until about 24 when I rejoined with every other, everybody's favourite, the Sydney Convicts. Why, why is um, <laughs> um, Yeah, but wasn't, it wasn't until that stage that I managed to convince myself that gay men could play sport because I had learnt and society had taught me that we didn't. So... I'd, I, I led to believe that this was true, but it wasn't until I had bit the bullet and joined the convicts that I realised that there are gay men just like me. Gay men who themselves all had similar stories playing sport growing up where they weren't, they weren't made to feel welcome. And, and that's when I first truly became comfortable as a gay man because I'd found, found my people and like-minded men within the community. I wanted to ask a little bit about your experience just because I'd say like recently, and we had a little rugby episode a couple of weeks ago with um, a newly out player called Devin Ibanez. I don't know if you saw like, uh, yeah, yeah, it'd yeah, be yeah, possible yeah. to not say anything about him that was out. He's, he's the one that wanted to, um, just wanted to mint on in and, and win Bingham. Yeah. Just win it by himself. Game on. <laughs> <laughs> just, he did respond. Yeah, he did, he did, I did. He's just put a massive target on his head though. Who does he play for? So he doesn't. Oh, go on. He well, doesn't have gonna a team, but he's going to pen. Yeah, the Barbarians. So he, he wanted to get the Barbarians and get the Barbarians' very first win at Bingham Cup. Uh, so he was going to bring a few of his friends, he said. Weren't the Barbarians doing like bumps of cocaine before the games at Bingham? Good luck, guys. <laughs> you need to well, they beat us. So <laughs> maybe. <laughs> yeah, we were the twos. Were that's, they? That's were that's where he got the energy yeah, from. From what I hear, they like they were just like getting wasted before and after games. I mean, he's alleg- getting, I mean alleged- allegedly, allegedly, allegedly. <laughs> I knew You're I wanted to join the Barbarians the for a reason. Now I wanted to ask you because we had Devin Ibanez on a couple of weeks ago, and he was talking about coming out in rugby. And I think there's differing opinions um, about how inclusive rugby is. And I watched this video with um, Nigel Owens, and he was like, "Rugby is a massively inclusive sport. He wouldn't hear otherwise, and it's definitely inclusive for many of the people." But I feel like your experience might have been a bit different when you were younger. Um, I, I, rugby, I played rugby league. I think rugby league has a very different culture to rugby union. Um, I know within Australia, rugby union is traditionally private, same as the UK actually, is a private school kind of sport. Um, it, it's more affluent, um, whereas rugby league is generally more working class. And within that becomes, there are stereotypes within those communities and societies that are, are, are true. Um, the situations where you can find that the working class can be a lot more homophobic. And there's also situations where the working class are a lot more accepting 
Um, unfortunately, just about where you are and you're at the time that you're going to find the community that's accepting for you. In any sport, if you do something wrong, the first thing you get called is a faggot. It's not, it's not said to you in a homophobic way. It's just, it's just language that kids use. Um, my nieces and nephews, something's bad, it's called, it's gay. As the gay team, you, you take that on, um, even though the, the, the way in the, the way those terms are used, uh, and like I mentioned, not homophobic at all. It's, it's just how, how, the, how people speak and you can't help but take that on as yourself. And I'm sure you can relate that even I would have called someone a faggot on the field when I was 16, said something that was gay, but now that I'm a 33-year-old man with something gay, it's, it's a good thing. So, mm. oh, she's gay. Like, it's great. It's just how you how, how words are used. Well, I think what's interesting is um, we had uh, one of the UK drag queens on a couple of weeks ago, Crystal, and she made a good point that really changed my approach to language and like uh, minorities claiming back words and because we were talking about the word queer and how some people don't like the word queer and some people do you know she she made the point that it all really comes down to intent if yeah. if you know because the word gay could be used in the same just put in instead of the word queer and it could just be filled with as much hate but we all identify as gay men so just it just being me like really because before like we we you know, Matt and I are now halfway through our fourth season and we always reflect on what things have happened before. Like when we first started recording this podcast, like the word queer was something that made me shudder. Like it made me feel of anger and sick. And then I've adapted, I've, I've adopted that word myself just because like Crystal said, you can just swap it in and out. But when you're dealing with kids, like my nephews are the same. They use, this is gay, that's gay. And um, I'm first in line to say, what's gay about it? I, 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 I'm I big on, we're so desperate to reclaim words there's no shame in letting the word die um mm-hmm. it's like i've written an article about the, the, the word faggot awful mm-hmm. term but gays seem so desperate to claim it as something cool and i'm like this is the term that's traditionally never been it's always been used as a derogatory term it's always been used in hate mm-hmm. why are we so desperate to reclaim it and that was something the good old oprah winfrey taught me um so she was mentioned about the n-word she's she speaking i think it was jay-z about um, she's speaking to Jay-Z about the use of the N-word. And she goes, look at it. The, there were generations, the last word that people who were murdered during a hate crime heard was the N-word. And she goes, and now we have a generation of rappers who are desperate to, to reclaim it or use it. And it's like, well, there's no shame in letting a word die. It, it's a word that is shrouded in hate and, and that kind of stuff. So why do we need it? I think that's quite tough. I get that completely, like 100%. Um, but the, for the word to die, then I guess the people that still weaponize it would have to stop using it as well, maybe. I'd like to think that no one in the world uses the N-word or uses um, faggot as an attack. But I feel like potentially that probably still is around. If you go to many of the like European countries, Ukraine, for example, you watch any videos of a hate crime there, that's what they're calling people. Um, we, 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 we are lucky to live in Western countries where, and we shouldn't take that for granted. So you need to realize that people throughout the world are still being being bashed, being murdered and being put in prison because of their sexuality. Um, I like, I don't feel very comfortable. I guess it's, I don't know if you could pick and choose. I don't feel comfortable saying like the N words, even as a black person. I don't actually say faggot as a gay person either, but I feel like I don't necessarily put queer in the same bracket maybe, but I, I don't know if that's, if there's any particular reason why, I guess more people use queer than they use faggot. It'd be weird. I think my grandmother used to call me queer. So I think that's a generational thing. <laughs> Thanks, Nan. As as an insult yeah no i think she was just like a, a terminology oh. for her in saying that she she was she outed me on my death on her deathbed 
Um, so stop God it. bless herself. <laughs> yeah. So she, she was, she was basically, she was, we're all gathered around. She was dying. And this is before I was out to my cousins and she's like, I was, I was her baby. Cause I was a little fatty. And she's like, he's not gay. Just before. And all my cousins are like, Oh, it makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> How old are you? I get, I get it now. That's why you had it. Um, I'd have been like 19 at the time. Oh shit. Were you fat at 19? No, but when I was little, because my nan was a bigger woman, and when I was a little, like to the age of ten, I was a little fatty. So we we bonded over cake and and chocolates. So once you stopped playing rugby, what happened to you? Did you manage to keep up doing any form of exercise, any looking after your body in that respect as a teenager, or as I guess an early twenty year old? Um, I'm always someone who I've trained my entire life. I kept up with the gym, but it wasn't the kind of sports training that didn't come back until rugby. Um, I think. The most training I did was on a podium at a club, shirtless, um, from the ages of 18 to 24. So, but nothing too serious. That wasn't until I got back into rugby and, and moved to Canada to play rugby there that I was fortunate enough to get a job at the Winter Sports Institute. So I ended up just training full time. Is that how you got into bobsleigh? Yeah. So but I, I basically moved to Canada to play rugby because I was like, oh, not going to make any teams here. So I'll see how far I can go in Canada. <laughs> um and so I, I went to Canada, played my first game in Canada, super excited and got red carded within like 10 seconds because it might not surprise you, Canadian rugby okay. is different to, to versus giant, giant Islanders here in Australia. So it's a bit softer. Um, and then the second game, I, I ended up scoring three tries, but uh, my, my cardio is not my forte. So that's all I did the whole game. Um, after the game, I got a tap on a shoulder from, because they have a clubhouse there we were drinking tap on the shoulder from a gentleman who was like, hey, my name is Heath Spence. And Heath Spence ended up being the pilot for the Australian team at Sochi that just had just gone. He's like, have you ever tried playing for this sport? He goes, you're strong, you're fast. Um, your cardio is awful. Um, so he's like, we could transition, we could transition you into to bobsleigh because um, you get hurt alone in bobsleigh too. So rugby players are good at that. Um, so basically from that moment, I stopped playing rugby in Canada and ended up focusing on, ended up training for the Australian team for about 12 months, just over a year, at which point I was able to try out for the development team. Um, and yeah, I was on the national team for two and a half seasons and unfortunately missed out on the Olympics, but that's life though, isn't it? I really just, mm. I wanted to go for the tattoo, to be honest. Did you get, oh, uh, you didn't get a tattoo then. Did you get like no, three rings, but no, no more? <laughs> no it's very frowned upon within the community if you oh, yeah. have a tattoo and you didn't you didn't go <laughs> imagine do you reckon people have had that before i know i know the people have like i know of a guy who who foreruns so like in bob say there's people who like they send someone down on the track before the race just to make sure it's it's good um there's no like nothing to report test out the timers and everything and the guy who did that at vancouver got the rings and everyone's like you didn't Yes, you, you slid it. You slid at the Olympics, but you tested everything out. Like you weren't, you weren't a competitor. You didn't make the team, but hey, that's a personal choice, and it's not one I would make personally. Bless him. Nah, imagine, imagine your job is to be the tester to make sure it's safe yeah. for everyone. I'm like, no, I'm not doing that. Thank you. That's not a test. I'm not. I don't want to make sure there's no like. Well, mix. well, it's one of those things you don't want to send the first national team athlete down. So and then be like, oh, this bit's broken all the timers didn't work and they've got to do it again because bobsleigh is not a sport you want to do again and again um because each time there's a there's a calculated calculated amount of risk and every time yeah. you have to do it that 
that the stats of you crack, the odds of you going up increase. You said you were the first out gay athlete for anyone in bobsleigh. Is is are the attitudes you think in bobsleigh different to rugby league or rugby in your experience? Bobsleigh is a very there's another one now by the way just retired. Uh, he's my friend. Bobsleigh is a, an Eastern European like old school patriarchal kind of um, European sport. So it's it's like most sports really in mainland Europe. They're, they're old old men with old school attitudes, and it makes it tough. And then if you go to North America. Um, in the US, it's very, it's around Utah and stuff. So there's a lot of religion within the community. So it, it's one of those sports where it, it, is, it is difficult for people to come out because that can jeopardize your place on the team. So some people just like to keep it to themselves. Whereas in my situation, I came out when I was 16 and I made the team when I was 26. So you can't go back you in. There. I, I wasn't getting put in back in that box. Well, people say that, like, you know, oh, you came out at a certain age or you came out at this age and that. But really, you do come out multiple times. It's not like there's one time when you do it. That's just it. I, I'm fortunate now that my sexuality has become my career but every time you start a new job every time you meet new people it's like you've got to go through that conversation about your sexuality and you don't just come out when you're 16 you have to come out for the rest of your life and even at the pub dealing with that drunk girl slurring a word oh you're not gay and you're like babes trust me i am um <laughs> trust me i, I can't go <laughs> anywhere near you um <laughs> <laughs> it's all right we've seen them all online simon don't worry <laughs> yeah, thanks. I was super excited when Tumblr Tumblr crashed, and I was like, "Oh, it's gone!" Oh, it's, the it's all works. gone now. Everyone's um, got dick pics online these days. Yeah. Do you know what? It's not. It's yeah, not that deep. Well, it's like OnlyFans has become a has become socially acceptable based on people blaming the pandemic, and I was like, "Bitch, please!" You were just looking for an excuse to make a few bucks, and now you're like, "Oh, I don't have a job. I don't have a job. Mm-hmm. I just do it." Are you getting an OnlyFans oh, anytime maybe. soon? You and Felix? No, just you? no, not at all. We have we work. Um, <laughs> no, um, I remember when it first came out, it was when I was at the Steelers, everyone used to make fun of me being like, oh, when are you going to get only fans? And like, as much as I like a house and a, and a sports car in the driveway, I um, I still do a lot of community work. I still speak at schools and speak at all businesses. And you can't really do that when there's videos of you jerking off online. So there's a well-known uh, Steelers twos coach who used to take the piss out of me every every time at training. He's lacking hair. Um <laughs> <laughs> lacking hair he's now our lead coach um, <laughs> oh, is that why the, is that why you're doing so bad oh. he just he just he just joined now to be fair so uh, ah yeah. bless him um yeah he used to make fun of me all the time well i feel like at the steelers i don't know if you thought this and i guess it's difficult if you've already got like an online following but did you get a lot of flack from the guys for having would you call yourself an influencer or influencer status no 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 i don't like i hate when people are like simon dunn influencer i was like I represent my country to get my followers like <laughs> so that I, i'm like, i didn't get them from well i did get them from that post and shirtless pictures let's be realistic but <laughs> I, I did have a career within the public eye before mm. that um but yes i definitely got a lot of got, got a lot of slack but what can you do well i think the thing that pushed you paying, up was they're not paying my bills exactly don't mind them and now everyone wants to be an influencer and then you had you became number one that shocked me. I actually remember when it came out, the number one, top 100 hot people or something in Attitude. Do you remember that, Ashley? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think Jewel Lacett was number 10. So, I mean, I'm like... <laughs> Joe Lacett's cute. Um, <laughs> but Channing I, Tatum I being that, number two, I was like, wow. I know. How did I win that? No, I think, I, I think it's, it was all like the perfect storm. Like voting started basically the day after I had made the team and there was media about it. So I just think I was topical at the what the, 
the two weeks that Bodie was on or whatever it was and well, for me because I got a free trip to London and got to meet Katie Price who was had no time for me whatsoever but hey I'll take it <laughs> do people in Australia know who Katie Price is no she just had no time for me she like we know who she is everyone I think everybody knows who she is but we had to get the photo together and she was like and then just walked away and I was like okay bye hon. okay bye I love you well, Peter, Peter Andre's Australian, isn't he? Yeah, he is. So why don't you tell us a bit about your time in London and how rugby was there? Because you started off in Sydney, then you went to Canada, made the Bob Says team, and then you came to London straight after that. Indeed. So I decided to come to London because when, when you're competing at a national level sport, it's, um, it's noble that you're competing, you're traveling, um, all these little things. But you go to bed at nighttime thinking about your place on the team, you'd wake up in the morning and that's the first thing you think about. Um, you've got politics and it's just, it's a, it's a lot of effort. It's a big haul on your life. And so I was like, you know, what? I'm going to go to London, go to some parties, play some, play some rugby for fun. And I remember arriving at London and be like, I just want to play for the twos. And that was sniped by Nick pretty, pretty quickly. But yeah, so that was my decision. I was just, I just got to play some rugby for fun in London. And the, the, the rugby in London goes forever. Like the season, what's the season? They're like nine months long. It feels that way. Like, you know, playing rugby is, we, it does take a toll on your body, but it feels like it never ends. You get injured and I'd like a serious injury and you'd come back and they're like, there's still three months left of the season. <laughs> no, absolutely. Then we had, then we had Bingham. And I remember, we, I remember us arriving back from Bingham. I think Alex, uh, the coach was like, oh, pre-season's training starts in three weeks. And we're like, get fucked. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 it doesn't. <laughs> Literally, that's myself back together. And it was awful. <laughs> No, they get it wrong. They definitely get it wrong. They're like, yeah, preseason starts in two days. I was like, I'll see you in four months. How, how was London for you? How, did you enjoy being with the Steelers? Was it difficult in any way? For most people, London's a culture shock. I've been living in rural Alberta, which is a small, small city. Calgary is a small city in, in um, Canada. And then I'd gone from having nice open spaces to being stuck on the tube for two hours a day, um, mm. paying too much in rent, not earning enough. Um, so the first couple of months, I was like, this is bullshit. Um, what am I doing here? Um, it wasn't until I found a core group of friends. I started rugby, found stuff that I could enjoy, that I really enjoyed it there. Um, then obviously I met my partner, Felix, and then the fun, then the fun out of my life went. <laughs> I stayed home on weekends and shit. <laughs> wasn't allowed to go to five, six, seven. No, I mean, Felix is a bit of a drab. We know that. He's nice to look at, but not much else. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Doesn't look like a night out. Because we've, no. we've got Mardi Gras this weekend, I'm like, we're having a house party because everybody's leaving by midnight. I was like, look at that. <laughs> oh, good. No, not at all. Did he ever go out? I don't know if he ever did, but Felix is lovely. He's a lovely person and he's a great athlete he, as well. He came, out, he, came out a, he came out a few times, but he, he, was, he always goes home before everybody else. And I'm like, well, I'm not. I, I, I will drag a night out as long as it's the last minute. <laughs> yeah, I'd say one thing we do remember about Simon Dunn is she do like a party. I think I was living my mid-20s that I'd lost during Bobsay at 30. Was it worth it? Did you enjoy it? Um, it was definitely like, definitely worth it. I just wish that I'd kind of made the Olympics. I would, like, there's a certain level. I probably could have committed a little bit more or stayed a little bit longer and had a chance to make the Olympics. Um, but it, it is what it is. Um, it's been nice to have a nice little jacket in my wardrobe and a Wikipedia page. So I guess that was, that was my four years of hard work. Got me a jacket. Mm. It's also given you a good platform, I guess, to address some of the more social issues that you you cared 
passionate about it as well, doesn't it? So, I mean, because you've in, obviously in, got... In, indeed, now, um, I, I, the community gave me so much when I was competing that I'd be silly not to use that platform for social causes that I'm passionate about. I work with several charities here. I've worked with Terence Higgins Trust in, in the UK, and these are things that, yes, Bob says a sport that didn't leave me with millions of dollars to donate and just feel like I've done my bit. So instead, it's, it, but it's given me a platform to actively go out and do stuff. Um, with one of the charities I work with here, it's Bob Goldsmith Foundation. They work with uh, people living with HIV directly. Um, so they do kind of outreach and stuff. So when I joined them, I said to them, I'm like, I, don't, I just don't want to be a, an ambassador or someone to put on a poster. And I'm like, I, I actually want to go out and work with your clients. And it's that the first time I did that was probably the most rewarding thing I've ever done in my, my charity work, but it was also the most eye-opening um, seeing one of the first, first people in Australia to have contracted HIV um, has been on a myriad of treatments and just to see the long-term effects it's had on him. And it's also grateful that our generation doesn't have to live through what they did, but it's all, we, it also shows me that we need to kind of tell their message and um, make sure that they're not forgotten and that this is still an ongoing issue. And it's not just within the gay community anymore. It's statistically the last growing group, uh, baby boomers, um, because they didn't get the safe sex message. They're all married and now they're all divorced or they're popping off to Thailand on a boys trip. Um, and that's when they're contracting HIV. And then you've got um, immigration from other countries into Western countries. They also didn't get the same message. And the, the face of HIV is changing so much, but it's still an issue a major issue within in all communities um have you have you been watching it's a sin oh, of course i have i loved it it's fantastic um what episode did you start crying from definitely cry episode three i started i started at two i got i got in real early what happened to episode two because i might have they were I'm, so they were, they were going over all their goals their 10-year goals and i was like watching uh, it i was like they're not gonna happen yeah <laughs> i didn't i, I, I didn't I, I've watched this genre before. I know how it ends. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't well up at that point. Definitely, it was definitely Colin. I was just like, what the? Uh, Colin, because everyone loved Colin. I loved him. Yeah, I am. Um, yeah. And then the last one, I was laying on the couch, um, and I think for me, because I do so much work with HIV, um, that I I put faces on these people or I identify with the community. I see. I put myself in their situation. Uh, I was laying on the couch with Felix and I was sobbing, you know, like ugly crying. Like, <laughs> Matt knows all about ugly crying. That. I and love I, me I ugly crying. I was that the whole time and I was like, oh God. And I think um, our community, we're very ignorant to it. And that, that's the best thing about It's a Sin is it's past, that, it's told the story of that generation. Um, even my partner Felix is very, was very naive about how bad the AIDS crisis was or the F was for our community. And when I first met him, I explained it to him. I was like, we're at rugby training. I was like, see, see this, see this team. Imagine coming back to training in a year and there's only like three of us left. I was like, that's basically what HIV did to our community during that time. And I was like, we're so fortunate that we weren't there, but we need to make sure that they're, they're not forgotten and their safe sex, safe sex message is passed on. Well, I think one of the, one of the most positive things out of um, happening with the TV show is that I think the increase of HIV testing um, in the UK, I know alone has gone up massively, which is obviously great. Um, Terrence Higgins Trust are fantastic with their at-home tests as well. It's, it's easy just 
jump on their website, put in your details and you'll receive a little parcel in the mail a couple of days later. And because we all know we've all had those, we've all had HIV tests where we're like, oh, you, mm. you become like, you start doing the numbers in your head, you're an accountant, you've got a calculator yes. out there, like three guys <laughs> times two, um, one condom. Um, the moon is full. Even though they've got rapid testing now, it's the longest 30 minutes of your life where you're sitting in the clinic being like, oh, fuck, this is, why, this why did I do one. that? Yeah. yeah. Um, so having the at-home test is great because you can just do it at home and company at home. You're not sweating in front of people. Teratina Trust has been great to get that, that program out and i commend them for that there's a, another charity that you um are an ambassador for just that well midway through last year as well um who are they and what do they do uh so it's, it's bobby goldsmith is one and then i've got give out day um so give out day is a u.s concept a lot of charities they they don't fall under the tax free um umbrella because they're not an official charity in, in a lot of countries especially in the u.s um so what give out day is an overarching um day where you can donate to smaller grassroots charities and they, they get that tax-free tick i guess what you whatever you want to call it um and it's a good way because generally i know with government allocations is yes the, the bigger the bigger charities they get they're doing a lot more work but that's because they also get the majority of the funding because they're in the public eye um, and then they they also have the funding to promote and in turn receive more money and then there's there's these community organized charities that are out there doing amazing work but because they don't have the funding they they can't really work at their full ability um so that's what give out day is a charity here um i think we raised 300 and something thousand dollars this year um last year which is great um so we're hoping to double that this year i know personally i've set a, a goal with the charities that i work with um last year in total it was about 500k the programs I managed to raise and I'm hoping to hit the 1 million because that's a nice figure to say made yeah. the 1 million. So, um, and as I mentioned, these, these are, this is what I find rewarding more than anything. Simon, is there anything that you wanted to share or say before you leave or give us some links to the charities that you work with? Plug. Um, plug, plug, plug. Yeah. So I just, one, thank you for having me. Um, check out, especially people in Australia, you can work with the Bobby Goldsmith foundation. Um, give out day will be occurring this year again. Also, um, everyone in the UK that is listening, Terence Higgins Trust do amazing work. Jump on their websites, donate some money, help them out. Tell them I said hi. Um, go over to their auction because there might be a their art auction coming up because there might be a beautiful painting of me um, <laughs> by the, the amazing Mark Waddell. It's hilarious. Wait till you see it. You'll you'll love it. Um, Thank you so much for coming on our podcast today. Thank you for coming this bright early morning for yourself. I don't know what time you wake up, to be fair. Thanks, Simon. It's way past my bedtime, um, so I'll be grouchy all day tomorrow. And fantastic to chat to you both. Take care, and I'm sure I'll talk to you soon. Yeah. Thanks. See you soon. Bye-bye. Okay, guys, that's it for this week's episode. Um, thank you, Simon, for coming on and talking to us. And Matt, thank you for joining us. I'm glad I could make it. It was really tough. <laughs> it was touch and go at the start there when you were like my internet's down i'm at waitrose <laughs> like, I'm i'll say bed. this now never never get virgin internet if you come to the uk never they are the worst the absolute worst ours is Can't virgin. Wait to change 
Uh, remember to catch us on Monday when we have another segment of Agony Ash with mm-hmm. Jordan Webb as well. Mm-hmm. Indeed, some juicy little advice being given out this week. Um, so yeah, have a great week, everyone. Have a great week and keep protest alive. Have a lovely weekend and enjoy the final week of the Six Nations, Ashley. You too, Matt. Have a lovely weekend. Bye. Bye.